This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Welcome, everybody, to our BCTR podcast, Doing Translational Research. I'm Chris Wildeman, um, your host, as almost always. Um, and I'm here today with my friend, Lawrence Berger, also known as Lottie Berger, <laughs> who's going to be very mad that I said Lawrence. Um, so I don't want to give Lottie a super long introduction, but the thing I do want to focus on is that he's the director of the Institute for Research on Poverty at the University of Wisconsin, which is now... I think the only federally funded Correct. program in that policy sort of series. So, um, so it's a it's a it's a big deal and a lot of pressure. He looks tired and pained today, sitting in front of me, um, He's losing his hair. <laughs> I mean, that was happening already. <laughs> <This is> but, <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, super happy that you could be here. Always, you know, love our chats. Um, so let me just kind of dive into things a little bit. Uh, you're um, you're somebody who studies the child welfare system, but is also, you know, engaged in these really sort of mainstream debates in, in social sciences. And so I guess it would be interesting to hear a bit about your, what you think of as sort of your main research interests and the questions you're trying to answer. And, and also maybe how you navigate, it's like sort of a liminal space between core social science disciplines and the things that social work as a discipline is, is interested in. Yeah. So I think uh, as far as sort of overarching research interests, I'm really interested in, you know, what affects and influences family functioning and how this plays out for children. So, And that actually has opened me up to being able to do research in a range of, uh, on a range of topics. So, you know, I like to think about, and I think it's important to think about sort of the intersection of public policy, of changes in families, of family structures, of family resources, um, and how this all comes together to affect both parenting behaviors uh, and children's well-being and development. And within that, a major line of my research has been around child abuse and neglect and child maltreatment. Um, the, you know, the second part of the question, the sort of social work versus the larger um, social sciences field, in some ways, I think that I'm very lucky to be grounded in social work um, because it's really not a discipline. You know, it's it's largely professional, um, uh, you know, so a professional trajectory. Um, and that, I think, opens it up to be able to draw from lots of other disciplines, to be able to take methods from different places. And I think, um, at least for me personally, it's been um, broadening because I, I'm not grounded in a, a discipline or field. I, you know, truthfully, I also think that over time we're all becoming interdisciplinary. I think that there's the, the walls between disciplines have been um, uh, lowered, and I think because they have to be, because to, to do good research, I think you have to draw from lots of places. Um, if I can make a Wisconsin plug, I think... Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I, I will say I think that's one of the things I've been really lucky about being at Wisconsin. It's a super interdisciplinary place. IRP has a history of being super dis interdisciplinary, and a lot of the work at Wisconsin is really gets done around centers and around topical interests rather than around departments and disciplines. Um, so I, I, I kind of feel like I ended up at the right place. Um, and it's a place where social work's been really well integrated 
with the other you know departments and disciplines. Yeah, that definitely seems like a unique feature of Wisconsin relative to mm-hmm. to other places. Social work is yeah, it seems really really central to where the social sciences are going, and yeah. it feels like it's been that way for a long time. Yeah, I mean it really has, and we also in our social work school have had a history of. Um, of so we hire economists and we hire developmental psychologists. Um, they all have to have you know some understanding of social work, some grounding. Um, but even if you look at the Institute for Restore Poverty, which was firmly founded in economics, I think you know five of the thirteen directors have had an, um, a connection or affiliation to social work. Mm-hmm. Um, several of them were economists, but had appointments in social work. Cool. Um, so. I want to talk a little bit about sort of how you have worked with community partners. Um, but it, I guess I, the thing that I'd be really interested in hearing about specifically, which we talked about last night at dinner, is, um, you know, the, the longstanding relationship you have with the state. Um, I mean, this is the sort of thing that so many different places are trying to get going. And so it would just be interesting to hear kind of about the history of that, um, you know, what things you've learned, what, what advice would you would give to people in terms of how to facilitate um, a good working relationship and then also, like, what things will just kill yeah. any deal, like, immediately. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I mean, one of the biggest things is it's really all about establishing solid, long-term, mutually beneficial relationships. So we've had, you know, good relationships, strong relationships with our state for 30, 40 years. Um, and over time, I think those, you know, relationships have just gotten stronger and stronger. And even when administrations turn over, you know, we go and we meet with the secretaries of all the major agencies. We have the connections within the, um, the, the long-term, you know, civil service staff. Um, we approach things very much as, you know, what are the important research questions you need answered? Um, how can we be beneficial to you, not just us? We go back, we present the research to them. Um, anything we use their data for, we give them 30 days before it's made public to comment, to raise questions. We're under no obligation to do anything with those comments. Um, but we never want to surprise them with things hitting the press that they don't know about. Sure. Um, the other thing is, so we, uh, so, you know, like the Department of Children and Families, I probably see the secretary there every six weeks or so. Uh, we send um, either faculty or staff to their key meetings. They have a monthly kids stat briefing, and we have someone there every month. Um, I meet with their Bureau of Performance Management monthly. Um, so we really keep these ongoing ties, not a, I want to do this project, let me have your data. Um, the, you know, the other thing that I think is really important, we kind of look at our relationships around data, around research as sort of yours, mine, and ours. So when we talk about projects, we say, you know, what do you want done? What do you need done? Um, what are things that we really want to do and you want to do? What are things that... Um, uh, are, are of huge mutual interest. And then what are some of the things that we really want to do that may be of less interest to you? And so we try to negotiate a, re- a balance between those things. Um, even the things that they're not particularly interested in, we're very careful. They have to have implications for benefiting the state programs and policies. Um, 
But I think that this has been a really great way to think about, you know, a long-term uh, collaboration, a long-term um, uh, uh, relationship that, uh, you know, that, that is, it's very apparent that we need and benefit each other. And what do you think has been, what have been sort of the most exciting things that have come out of that collaboration? Either, I mean, m- maybe two things, maybe one thing in the state size and then one thing on sort of the pure research kind of side. Yeah. Uh, so actually on the state side, some of the research that I think has been, it wasn't actually my research, it was Maria Kanchin's research with some colleagues. Um, one of the things that I think is most exciting for state and is um, influencing slowly state policy uh, she did some work looking at the intersection of child support and child welfare. And so, uh, kind of briefly, when a child goes into foster care, uh, the child welfare system, or the child support system can do two things. So one, if the, if the primary caregiver prior to the foster care placement had a child support order, they can reassign that to recoup foster care costs. Two, they can go after that primary caregiver to pay child support to support the foster care costs. Uh, So it turns out in Wisconsin there's massive variation in what counties do from, uh, you know, going after the the vast majority of families in one or both those ways to the tiny minority of families in one or both those ways. So they harness, uh, you know, cross-county overtime variation in that. Um, and what they essentially found was when you do either of those things, kids are in care longer, they're less likely to reunify, they're more likely to TPR. Uh, if they go home, they're more likely to come back into the system. Hmm. Um, and they did a cost-benefit. And the amount of money that the, the state recoups compared to foster care co- costs is tiny. Sure. Um, and so this has a real implication because you're telling families essentially – you need to stabilize, you need to get it together, you need to create a, um, a safe and stable environment for a kid to come home to, but you also need to pay a decent amount of your, your limited income um, for the foster care costs. So it turned out that th- this was really influential um, in the department. Um, they are attempting to move toward a system where you don't start going after foster care or after child support for the first six months mm. until it looks like a child's unlikely mm. to go home. And you make a determination the first six months of how likely is it, would the family be better off? Uh, that hasn't, there's a bunch of legislative hurdles. There's a bunch of, um, frankly, some of the counties don't want to give up the, the child support money regardless. Um, so, so it's, it's getting worked through, amount. right. Uh, but I think this is also being considered now, I know it is, in multiple other states. And I think that's a really great um, example. Uh, I can give you another quick one. Kids in foster care do really poorly on most measures of well-being throughout the life course. Um, our state came to us, a bunch of states had put out reports um, really showing how poorly they did compared to the average kid. And our state said, hey, we're ruining kids' lives when we put them into foster care. We're causing these poor outcomes. And what do we do about it? And we said, well, before we figure out what we do about it, 
why don't we do some work to figure out if it's likely that foster care is uh, making their trajectories worse or it's just um, a selection factor. If it's just that these kids are on bad tra trajectories and maybe foster care is not compensating for it, um, but it's not actually uh, making things worse. And which is an important policy question, right? And so what we essentially found out was foster kids aren't doing any worse than kids who get an investigation by Child, by child Protective Services um, and don't go into foster care. Uh, in most areas, there are some exceptions. Um, and so that has a, a very different implication for thinking about how to intervene. And so we're really working with the state to intervene among not just kids in foster care, uh, among the larger pool of kids involved in CPS. And this has been a really great partnership between us, the Department of Public Instruction, and the, the Department of Children and Families. Um, and I think we've really changed the thinking in Wisconsin around the role of foster care. Um, and truthfully, one of the, we found pretty strong suggestive evidence the kids that are doing worse are kids who are going to be removed in the future but are still at home. Mm. Do you, I, I guess, so uh, I too have published a, a null effects kind of paper that people didn't like, the yeah. paper that Kristen and I wrote on maternal incarceration um, and kids' which, behavioral problems, which like everyone in the universe hates. Right. Um, I, I guess I'd be curious, did you, did you get sort of blowback from that study a bit, either from practitioners yeah. or from other researchers? Yeah. And, you know, if you did, how do you... Think about that. It sounds like part of the framing that you did is to say we're actually not thinking about the vulnerable pool as large enough right. because we're not thinking about kids who have investigations right. but aren't placed. But yeah. and I, so I think so. We did get some blowback. We did an, another couple series of studies we're still doing on kids aging out of care, and I think this has been a little more controversial. Um, and partly, like what we've argued is the people haven't gotten the comparison groups or the counterfactuals right. And it's been data limitations. It's not sure. a, um, a criticism on the, the scholars. Um, and we happen to have access to unbelievably good, detailed longitudinal administrative data, so we were able to, to leverage better data. Um, and we found a similar story with the kids aging out of care. Yes, compared to average kids... Uh, in, in school, they're doing terribly. Uh, compared to other poor kids, uh, they're doing a little bit worse, um, but not anywhere near the gaps. Compared to kids who spend time in foster care as, uh, as adolescents, um, the kids who age out, we find, are actually doing as well or better on many measures than the kids who reunify. Sure. Kids who are adopted, on the other hand, are either doing similarly to kids who age out or better. Uh, the kids who age out don't do better than the adopted kids. And so, you know, the, some of the blowback's been, well, so you're saying kids shouldn't reunify, and that's not at all what we're saying. Um, what we're saying is what the data says is that... It, that aging out itself is not the cause of the poor outcomes. And what we've argued, and which I, I think is really important to think about, is when a kid ages out of care, you provide a range of services. Yep. They may or may not be the perfect <clears throat> services, um, but 
you give them or you provide them with uh, a range of supports. When kids reunify, you typically say the family's safe enough to go home, um, so we're going to assume everything's going to work out okay. And these are still really vulnerable, uh, struggling families. And so what we've argued is we should be investing in both groups um, instead of just the group that that is aging out because um, uh, our evidence suggests that it's not just the aging out that's causing the problem. I think it's tough in our work and in, the, and in our field that sometimes, like your paper, when you follow the data, it's not always intuitive. It's not always what people want to hear. Um, it's not always what you yourself want to think or want to believe. But I think it's absolutely crucial for public policy um, that we do our very best to get it right. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, I, I agree with that. It's interesting with the. It's interesting with the foster care example too, because one of the things that I feel like. I sort of implicitly hear from folks is that a move back home is not disruptive for kids. But then, like, you know, if you're 15 and you've been in care on and off for four or five years, a move home might mean changing schools in the middle of your right. sophomore year and, you know, learning, like relearning a different parenting right. style, yeah. like experiencing these like network disruptions and like all of those I mean it's just interesting I think people don't think about the fact that the transition home can also be stressful so I totally agree with that and I think it probably is stressful so most kids want to be with their parents most parents want to be with their kids so it's not a comment on that but you're right and it may also be going from a, a much more sort of stable environment to a less stable environment. So one of the things that we found in looking at our work on uh, foster kids' uh, test scores and achievement in, in school uh, is that we were trying to look at some mediators. We didn't find a strong mediation story, but one thing we found was when kids go into foster care, their attendance improves a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's probably about a more stable home life that's sort of able to get you to school um, and those kinds of things. So those transitions, I think, are also important, even if there's lots of love in the household. Yeah. Yeah. No, interesting. Um, so so I, I have kind of just two, um, two sort of closing questions, although, you know, maybe one you feel like you've already answered. So one is basically sort of, what the two to three big kind of findings from your research are. So you can either add two or three more, or we can count the previous ones. It depends on how taxing you yeah, found so. this process and whether you've run out of uh, ideas. So I'll say so. I'll say on the child welfare, and I would like to throw sort of one uh, additional finding out that's on really the front end of the child welfare case system on determinants of child maltreatment and CPS involvement. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I've done some work, you've done some work. Uh, I think there's increasingly evidence from largely quasi-experimental work, experimental work that um, uh, income and economic resources likely matter in a causal way for child maltreatment. I don't think it's uh, 100% certain yet, but I think that's a really, really important um, finding that, that uh, really needs to be pursued more, and we need to think about... Um, look, 
psychosocial interventions, there's mixed results on. We have only a handful of really pro proven uh, um, programs. The they are a lot of these problems are difficult. They're relatively entrenched. They take a long time. If uh, the cause benefit works, if there's a causal relationship, we know how to transfer income. Um, we could potentially do a lot of prevention, not just of child abuse and neglect. I think on child development, we're getting better and better evidence of a causal relationship. Um, it may be cheaper and easier. Um, to intervene around that. And I think that's a really important area right now and for future research. So let me, um, I, I typically end up doing this where there's something that I've been curious about for a long time and I like kind of bracket it. And then at the 11th hour, I decide to introduce Throw it. it so, yeah. yeah, sorry. So it's just the way it goes. Um, so the one thing I that I think would be interesting to hear you talk about sort of kind of on a purely intellectual level, I guess, is just that measuring child maltreatment is hard. And a lot of the things that we measure when we measure child maltreatment are just indicators of poverty, essentially. And so I, I guess if, if you were thinking about giving advice to somebody who is about to start their dissertation, say, in this area... Um, how would you talk to them about measuring child maltreatment in a way that isn't just using it as a stand-in for poverty and is really sort of enhancing child well-being as a result? Yeah. Uh, so one thing I would think about is sort of triangulating and using multiple measures. So both. So I'll say the Child Protective Services reports we use because it's very policy relevant, it's very legal, it's... Uh, by far going to pick up more poverty kids. I'm not so sure to, in today's network that it's largely surveillance. I think just having an investigation is a pretty uh, clear proxy that a family is, uh, if not maltreating or at risk of maltreating, really struggling with some psychosocial and economic problems. So I actually think that that, and the majority of investigations, essentially there's no child maltreatment funding, we don't do anything. I think that we've identified a big families, a group of families that we know are at risk, um, and they're clear for intervention. I also think, and this is somewhat controversial, in my dissertation, I used a bunch of kind of standardized parenting scales. And what I said was, if we look at the bottom of that distribution, so uh, parents are more harsh than 90% of parents, they're in the bottom 10%. Parents are less warm. Uh, kids are less likely to get medical and dental checkups. Uh, they're more likely to get spanked, etc. Um, it may not rise to the to the level of uh, of legal thresholds of of child maltreatment, but I think if you want to, you know, combine with child development, it's really important to think about whether it's actual maltreatment or not. Very low quality parenting that may you know, reflect lack of economic resources or may reflect uh, parental management or a range of other problems, you know, I'm somewhat partial to also using those kinds of measures, which we can collect in survey data, um, whereas it's, re it's almost impossible to collect actual maltreatment data in survey data without having to report the families. Right. And that represents a broader shift that you see in social work, right, from child welfare being narrowly defined as child safety right. 
to child welfare being more broadly defined as things that facilitate or impede development. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. That was a good answer. <laughs> um, so last question. And I think, you know, you are someone who's probably really especially well situated to answer this. So like no pressure. Um, so if, if there is one kind of real world change that you could make, especially based on your, um, you know, your sort of research and your role as IRP director, again, no pressure. Um, you know, what would, what would that be? Uh, so, so I'll stick with child welfare again. So I would, and there's no question this would cost money, it would, I would do more around this huge population of children and families that touch the child welfare system and get no ongoing services. Uh, to put it super bluntly, uh, and this isn't exactly accurate, but essentially what we say is we have limited ways to serve you until you actually maltreat your children. Uh, and I think from a social responsibility um, uh, framework that's just wrong. We've investigated you. Uh, we um, we know. So in Wisconsin, families that uh, have their cases closed after initial investigation, twenty five percent of them are re reported within a year. Almost forty percent within two years. Yeah. Uh, in that first year, fifteen percent of them are substantiated for maltreatment. Um, and so I think that this is just a crucial population to offer a range of services. A triple P kind of thing could really work for, you know, I don't know, it hasn't been tested, but could have potential for the, this fam, this group of families. Um, Wisconsin is increasingly interested in serving these families because by the time they get to the system, foster, or child welfare in general, but particularly foster care is an expensive intervention. Yep. Um, Colorado is interested in this. I think Ohio's starting to get more interested. Um, so I think thinking about the majority of kids who touch the system who haven't been substantiated and what we can do to both prevent deeper involvement with the child welfare system and support a better trajectory of development and well-being um, is a really crucial area. Yeah. Yeah, no, that I, I mean, that was supposed to be the final word, but I, I will interject <laughs> again. But I mean, I think I do think there are these interesting parallels to the criminal justice system where... Somebody could get arrested, you know, 10 times, um, but if they don't catch a serious charge and don't end up doing either a relatively long stint in jail or actually spending time in prison, like, we're not going to give them any services. Yeah. And it's interesting because it, it is this, like, vulnerable sort of population right. that you are immediately coming in contact with and not serving them right. is not going to go well for anybody right. in the long run. Right. Like, um, yeah. And, we're, you know, obviously we're not talking about mandating services, but at least offering services, and not all the families will take up. But, you know, to give families the opportunity um, to get connected to things that could help them, I think is super important. Great. Well, thank you, Lonnie Berger, director of IRP. Thank we you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Great to get to talk to you in a formal way. Yeah. It was. It was yeah. fun. Yeah. information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.